Good morning, everyone, and uh, it's good to see you today, and uh, we welcome also those of you who are in our church in Whitehall, and hope you guys are doing well also. Well, I've shared with you many times that I grew up in church, a Baptist church to be exact, and uh, as I've grown older, I've become more grateful for my experience in that church because I realized just how much of a foundation it gave me in the Word of God. Church, that church pounded into me that the Bible is where you go to learn the truth, the truth about the things that, that matter most, God, Jesus, sin, salvation, eternal life, heaven, hell, all of those things. I was taught that it is essential for Christians to read the Word of God regularly and study it and memorize it and meditate on it and Seek to pattern our lives after its truth, to obey the word of God. I am truly thankful for my upbringing in that regard. What I wasn't taught that much about in that church was the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I came of age in the early 70s, and that was the era of the Jesus movement, and particularly the charismatic renewal that arose as a significant part of that movement. And the fine folks in our traditional Baptist church were not fans of the Charismatics, to say the least. <laughs> they really looked down upon them with disdain. All that raising of hands in worship and swaying to the strange new music sung by the long-haired hippie types who were showing up in church, the speaking in tongues, people being slain in the spirit and such, the thinking in our church was that if, if, if that is what spirit-filled people do, then we wanted nothing to do with such craziness. In the years since, I, I hope I've come to a more balanced and more biblical view of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Like many of you, I truly do want to live the spirit-filled Christian life. My hunger to be a part of what God is doing has led me to seek exposure to a variety of different streams within Christianity. So I've gone to third wave churches. I've attended conferences that leaned charismatic. I was actually there at the Brownsville revival 20 years ago. I was there. I researched the Toronto Blessing and the Kansas City Prophets and the Vineyard Movement and more recently the New Apostolic Reformation. For over 40 years, I, I've had an ache in my heart to get in on what God is up to and to not miss out because I put God in a box and restricted his activity to my preferences and, and what I'm comfortable with. But I would say that throughout all of those eras and all of those experiences, what has never left me is the deep conviction that my own Christian experience must be grounded in the word of God. And the word of God rightly divided, as 2 Timothy 2.15 says, cut straight. And so, if a particular experience is supported and advocated in Scripture, then I want to explore it. If it's foreign to Scripture, then my instinct is to question it. I want a Bible-based, word-guided experience of the Holy Spirit's activity and ministry. And within that parameter... I want everything God has for me, and I know many of you share that sentiment. 
Well, today as we embark on an adventure together, an excursion into the New Testament book of Acts, I want us to pay particular attention to the descriptions we will see in Acts of life in the Spirit. What the Spirit-filled life and the Spirit-filled church looked like right out of the chute. And I'm going to encourage all of us to be both open and discerning as we walk through this together. I think it's a natural human tendency to filter Scripture through our own experiences. But that really places us over in judgment on the Word of God. It makes us evaluators of the Word of God. The better approach is to filter our experiences through the Word of God and let it evaluate us. So today we're going to go up high, okay? We're going to get the drones view of the book of Acts. We're going to go high above and look down on the entire book, just the whole panorama of this book, so we can get the flow and the main themes that the author wanted his readers to grasp. And it's going to feel a little academic, but, but stay with me because this is necessary for rightly dividing the word of truth. And so if you haven't pulled out your study guide yet, do that because i got a lot for you today and you can, you're going to want to track with me, okay? First, let's just ask the question, who wrote it? Who wrote the book of Acts? And the answer is Luke. Luke, a physician, a doctor, a close associate of the apostle Paul. This is really not deba debated much. Luke was a contemporary of the disciples. He was a very educated man, a very detail-oriented and meticulous man. He was very concerned with accuracy. And this book, Acts, was actually volume two of a history of Christianity that Luke wrote. The first volume is what we know as Luke, <laughs> the Gospel of Luke. That's right. So here's how the book of Acts opens, first couple of verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, that's Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So we see that Acts is volume 2, the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, which was volume 1. And in volume 1, Luke meticulously laid out a detailed account of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, all that Jesus began to do and teach, he says, which Luke gleaned from eyewitnesses who, who knew Jesus, who walked with him. And then now here in volume 2, he pens his account of the ongoing work of Jesus, Jesus now risen and ascended into heaven, his ongoing work of spreading his gospel through his people and building his church. What we discover as we read the book of Acts is that Luke is writing mostly from the third person vantage point up until chapter 16 where he starts using the term we. And that alerts us that he's now joined the team. He's now observing firsthand the adventure that, that he was on. So, between having eyewitness sources and firsthand experience, and also possessing that, that penchant for precision that physicians have, that doctors have, wanting to get it right, 
as well as writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we should all understand that Dr. Luke was well qualified to write this incredible history of Christ's church. So Luke wrote it. Who did he write it to? Well, he gives a name. Did you see it? Theophilus. Theophilus. That name means friend of God. Theos, God, Philos is friend or lover, friend of God or lover of God. Well, who was this guy? The truth is we're not told very much about him. He's only mentioned here and in Luke chapter 1 where he is called most excellent Theophilus. Wouldn't you like it if people called you that? Most excellent Jim, most excellent Mary. Well, that's how he's referred to, a term of honor. And there's a few theories about his identity, who he was. The most intriguing of those theories to me is that this man, Theophilus, was Paul's lawyer in Rome. He was the attorney charged with defending Paul during his trial in Rome. And if that's true, then Acts, this account here in this book, was actually like a legal brief that was written to apprise Theophilus of the history of the Christian movement so he would have some background from which to craft his defense of Paul. But really, that's all just speculation. <laughs> we, we, we don't know. We're not really sure who this fellow was. So Luke writing to Theophilus and to others who would read his account down through the centuries, including us. When did he write it? Well, probably before 70 A.D., some scholars argue for a later date, but I side with those who hold to a date in the 60s. That's not the 1960s, that's the 60s. And I hold to that primarily because there is no mention in Acts of a momentous event that occurred in 70 AD. Do you know what that was? The destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. And... Uh, that would be a conspicuous absence in this book if that had already happened, if it was written after 70 A.D. I also think that the book was written in that era of the 60s because the book ends kind of abruptly and Paul is still alive. He's under house arrest in Rome and history tells us that Paul was executed for his faith in 64 A.D. So since he's still alive at the close of Acts, I favor a writing date before that. So somewhere in the 62, 63, 64 date range. And what do we have here in Acts? Well, what's the genre of this writing? And we know that the scriptures are, are written in a variety of different genres. And scholars call this historical narrative. Historical narrative, okay? So just like with his gospel, the gospel of Luke, in, in this book, Acts, Dr. Luke fashions a historical narrative narrative that traces the flow of actual events that really happened. He introduces us to the people who were involved in those events. Now, this is not exhaustive. Luke doesn't cover every single thing that happened. Rather, he is selective. He reports on the, the events that fit his purpose in writing, which was to show the expansion of the Christian church from its infancy there in the city of Jerusalem. So Acts is a historical record, it's a narrative of first century activity that I think we're going to fall in love with as we walk through it, because in the book of Acts we discover the roots of our Christian faith, the roots of our Christian heritage. 
Now, let me give you some interesting facts about Acts, all right? First, it is one of the longest books of the New Testament, 1,003 verses. You say, which books are longer? Well, Luke, who's kind of a long-winded fellow, I guess. Matthew also is a bit longer. Second, fully one-third of the book of Acts, you could say, is in quotes, people talking, speeches, speech material, it's called. There are actually 28 recorded talks or speeches in the book of Acts, everything from sermons given to a Jewish audience to teachings given to Gentiles to personal testimonies to explanations of miracles There are a number of of legal defense speeches in the book of Acts given before the authorities. So lots and lots of speeches in this book. All of Acts chapter 7, for example, is one long speech given by the man named Stephen. He gave it before the Jewish high council, and as I mentioned last weekend, it got him killed. And the theme of many of these talks, almost all of them, was this. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, is now risen and reigns from heaven as Lord over all. And Jesus is calling you to repent and turn from your sin and submit to him as your king. That's the message that the apostles lived and died proclaiming. And that's the message that we continue to proclaim today, isn't it? Jesus Christ, the risen Lord of all, calling people to bow to him. Here's another interesting feature. Acts contains a number of accounts of supernatural phenomena, the miraculous. Like people being given the ability to speak foreign languages that they'd never gone to school to learn. Like a lame man being healed with just a spoken word. Like a married couple who lied to God, struck dead by the Lord immediately. Sick people being healed, demon-possessed people being set free, angels opening prison doors in the middle of the night to release God's people. We see the story of a paralyzed man healed like that, healed in an instant. We see a woman raised from the dead. We read about a perfectly timed earthquake that opened up a jail cell. Many, many miraculous events recorded, historical events recorded in the book of Acts. And what we're going to see in Acts is the Holy Spirit manifesting His miraculous power through the apostles and opening up doors to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Acts also contains a number of Very famous statements, statements that perhaps you've heard, like these. You ever heard this? Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. You ever heard that? That comes right out of the book of Acts, actually a quote from the Old Testament. How about this one? Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee. That's from the book of Acts. How about this one? There is no other name, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, 12. The apostle said, we cannot help but speak what we have seen and heard. We must obey God rather than man. Very famous statement. Comes right out of the book of Acts. 
What God has made clean, do not call unclean. How about this one? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16, 31. And that famous statement by a, a ruler to Paul, almost, almost you have persuaded me to become a Christian. Lots of famous statements in Acts. Acts also records some very interesting and intriguing events, including how Judas died in grisly detail. We find out how Judas died and also how he was later replaced in the band of apostles. We read about the disciples with their hair on fire, not something you see every day. We see the first instance of church discipline, which was very severe. We see the selection of the first deacons, the story of the first Christian martyr, the very cool story of Philip out in the desert leading the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ and then baptizing him in a desert pool. We see the radical conversion of a terrorist named Saul of Tarsus. Peter's strange vision of clean and unclean animals lowered down from heaven in a sheet. We see that in Acts as well. We're introduced to the first official government persecution of Christianity in the church that ended up scattering Christians all, all over the place. We see the story of King Herod being eaten by worms. Yikes. We're given the, uh, the story of the first church council, the very first church council, the famous one that was held in Jerusalem, presided over by Pastor James in which the, the pressing issue of how Jews and Gentiles were going to get along together in this new thing called the church. We see the first conflict between missionaries. There have been a number since, down through the centuries. We see the very first conflict between Christian missionaries, and we see how God used the parting of their ways to end up spreading the gospel. It's in Acts that we, we hear the famous Macedonian call, where the man in the vision said, come over here and help us. And we should be glad he did, because as a result, we've ended up getting to hear the gospel. There's the famous conversion of the Philippian jailer and his family right after that earthquake. And there's the conversion of Crispus. Crispus the crispy critter. That's why I put that in there. I was saying that, to, I was joking with my wife this morning about this, Crispus the crispy critter. And she, she said, she kind of took offense. She said, well, what if he got burned at the stake? Wouldn't you just feel horrible calling him a crispy critter? I'm like, all right, sorry. Just trying to have some fun here. Anyway, <laughs> in Acts, we see the first ever occurrence of brand new Christians gathering up all their worldly CDs and videos and demonic books and throwing them into a big bonfire. An occurrence that has been duplicated many times down through the centuries in, in Christian youth groups. And we see the humorous story of a young guy nodding off during a long sermon. Like I hope none of you will do today. And I especially hope that you will not meet his fate because he nodded off and fell out of a third story window to his death. He died. I guess that's death by sermon, I guess you could call it. But then, miraculously, Paul raised him from the dead so he wouldn't have to miss communion at the end. And uh, we're having communion at the end today, too. I hope you'll be here and alive for that. The book closes with this interesting story of Paul en route to Rome 
on a ship which encounters the perfect storm. And the storm just battered the ship to pieces, and he ended up floating around in the water a couple of days, finally landed on an island. He's soaking wet. He's wanting to warm his hands in the fire there on the beach, and a, a viper, a poisonous snake, jumps out of the fire and latches onto his hand. And, and all the locals were like, oh, no. And it says Paul just shook, shook the snake off into the fire and walked away unharmed. And the locals were like, he's a god. The gods are here. Lots of interesting stories in the book of Acts. We're going to have a good time. Let's talk about the purpose, the purpose of Acts. Why did Luke write it? Towards what end? What did he have in mind? What guided him as he selected different historical events to include in his account here. Scholars have identified several purposes. First, to record for future generations the unstoppable progress and expansion of gospel Christianity despite a number of obstacles, right? The relentless march, the victorious march of the Christian gospel across the Asian and European continents. Luke wanted to record that. Second, he wrote this book to reveal the risen and ascended Lord Jesus as still at work, even after his finished work on the cross. Now, we understand that when Christ was here, his work of redemption on the cross was completed, right? He said it. It is finished. But that doesn't mean his, the totality of his work was completed. When he ascended back up into heaven, Jesus began his work of church building. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church. He is the master church builder. And Acts records that ongoing work of Jesus, the steady advance of the church of God. Third, Luke wrote Acts to demonstrate historically that God intends to bring people of all types into his family. Aren't you glad of that? Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. The book of Acts records Jesus bringing all kinds of people into the family of God, every ethnic background, every color, every race. And when we go to the end of the book, Revelation, we see gathered in heaven that kaleidoscopic group of people, right, worshiping Jesus from every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue. It's going to be beautiful. And God is in the process, even in our day, of forming this multi-hued family of God. That's one of Luke's aims in the book of Acts, to show that. Number four, also to show specifically how the God of Israel brought his salvation to non-Jews, to Gentiles, which had been his intent all along. And the Jews kind of got it messed up. They started to kind of hog it all for themselves, you know, like this is just for us. And the Lord's plan was always for them to be a lighthouse to the Gentiles. And Luke shows how the Lord began to open, up, open that up. Five, Luke wrote Acts to demonstrate that this new movement, the church, was really rooted in ancient, God-given promises. You see, in that day, Christianity was a new thing. It was the new, cool, hip thing that was happening. But in that Roman culture, they didn't really have high regard for things that were new. They, they, they had high regard for things that were ancient and weighty and had gravitas. And Luke wants to show them that Christianity is just that rooted in thousands-year-old promises from God himself. So we see a lot of scripture, Old Testament scripture, quoted in the book of Acts. 
Number six, Luke wrote Acts to defend and legitimize the Christian movement in the eyes of the Roman world, to help the Roman authorities understand that Christians were not intent upon overthrowing the government. That was not what followers of Jesus were all about. And then finally, Luke wrote this book to inspire devotion in future followers of the way. That's interesting. Christianity in Acts is called the way. By telling stories of first-generation evangelists and Christian martyrs, he, he knew that he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that future generations would read his account, and he wanted us to be inspired and encouraged by the devotion of those who have gone before us. Well, let's ask, how is this book of Acts put together? Is there any definable structure to it that would help us see a a flow, a direction, and I believe that there is. Would you read aloud with me again uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8? Let's read this together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's the fifth version of what is known as the Great Commission. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and here in Acts. And this commission by Jesus given to his disciples really provided Luke with the layout for his book here. Acts divides neatly into six sections, and each of those sections shows how the witness of the apostles expanded to, this, to the next region. And at the conclusion of each section, there's a summary statement where Luke affirms the relentless progress of the gospel. So section 1 goes from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 7. That's demonstrating gospel witness spreading throughout the city of Jerusalem. That section ends like this, and the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The next section, section 2, we see the gospel witness spreading to Judea and Samaria, just like it said in Acts, it would in Acts 1.8, from 6.8 to 9.31. And again, the summary statement in 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So like ripples in a pond, we see the gospel moving outward from Jerusalem. Section 3, the gospel witness goes to the Gentiles in Antioch up north. That's 932 through 1224. Again, the summary statement, but the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. Section 4, gospel witness extends further west into Asia Minor and into Galatia. That's chapter 12, verse 25 to 16.5. And again, the summary statement, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. You see how this is put together here? Section 5, the gospel witness reaches further out into the great Gentile cities even beyond Asia Minor. Summary statement, chapter 19, verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And then finally, the gospel witness continues on to Rome, the capital of their world. And here's how the book of Acts closes. Acts 28, verse 30, and Paul lived there, speaking of Rome, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. 
So do you see it? See how Luke structured this account? He did it in such a way as to chronicle the remarkable expansion of Jesus' church to the point that within 30 years of Jesus ascending up into heaven, the entire Roman Empire had been exposed to the gospel and churches, Christian churches, had sprung up all throughout that region within 30 years. In one city, when the Christian missionaries showed up, one fellow even said this. He said, oh no, these who have turned the whole world upside down have come here also. To me, this, this story of Acts gives evidence of what mighty things Jesus can do through just a small band of ordinary people who have extraordinary devotion to his cause. And that's what happened in Acts. Well, who are the primary characters in this book? We are introduced to Peter, the fisherman disciple who became the brash, outspoken apostle. Stephen, Philip, a lot of Acts is devoted to the story of Paul. But really... I mean, really, the main actor in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. He's the primary actor. It was F.F. Bruce who wrote, this book would be better entitled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. I agree with him. Because in Acts, we're going to see the Holy Spirit acting. We're going to see the Holy Spirit working, indwelling people, giving them gifts, empowering them to do mighty works, binding them together into a very attractive, winsome community and turning God's people into bold witnesses for Jesus who loves spreading the gospel even at great personal cost. It's going to be great. We're going to love Acts as we walk through it together. Here are some of the dominant themes and recurring themes that we'll see again and again in Acts. Number one, Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord of all people. Amen? Jesus risen and reigning from heaven. Number two, Jesus sent his spirit to create and empower his church for their mission in the world. Third, the church's mission is to continue Jesus' work of evangelizing and discipling all kinds of people into God's family through declaring and demonstrating the gospel. Declaring and demonstrating. Both are important, and that's a potent combination when you're Life matches what your lips are speaking, right? Many of us have been impacted by believers who had that going on. They were not only speaking and declaring the gospel, they were demonstrating its truth and reality by their lifestyle. And it was winsome to us. And we said, well, I want that. And fourth, the church must, must, must have the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish its mission. It's got to happen or we'll be ineffective. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, you know, I'm sending you on a mission, but first wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. You must have the power of the Holy Spirit. And when I boiled all this down to what could this mean for us, what's the main challenge for us today, and I, I think it's this, Moment by moment, conscious yielding to the control of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Amen? Moment by moment, conscious, it's a decision, 
yielding the controls, taking your hands off the wheel of your life. Every time I get in my car, I pull my keys out. It's just a reminder to me that I want to say to the Holy Spirit about my life, you drive. You drive my life today, Holy Spirit. (laughs) You sit in the driver's seat. You take the wheel of my life. You drive my life. Be in control of my life. That's what I want today. People don't need to see more of me. They need to see more of Jesus in me through the filling of the Holy Spirit. I remember first being exposed to this idea of being under the Holy Spirit's control when I was a sophomore in Bible college just a couple years ago. I was sitting in a class called The Christian Life when a balding, bespectacled old professor named C. Sumner Wemp started to talk to the class about the spirit-filled life. He'd written a book called How on Earth Can I Be Spiritual? And of course, he made us purchase the book as part of his class, the textbook. But I'm so glad that he did that. Reading that book opened my eyes. It, It did away with some of the negativity about the Holy Spirit that I had picked up earlier on in my life. I distinctly remember him one day looking out of the class and saying, turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Let's read this aloud together, and we did. It says this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And he said, class, the key concept here that Paul wanted to get across is control. Control. Just as alcohol controls the person who consumes too much of it, so the Holy Spirit controls the person who is filled up with Him. And Paul was saying, don't let alcohol control you. That will lead to bad things. Instead, let God's Spirit control you, and that will lead to good things. And I remember it's like a light came on in my soul, and I got it. And we know this. We know this. Being under the influence of alcohol can change a person's behavior, right? It can cause them to become uncharacteristically outspoken and brash and uninhibited and fearless. And Paul here was saying, in a similar way, the Spirit of God will change your behavior as well if you yield to His influence. He was saying, you too will have a newfound boldness and lack of inhibition and fearlessness, but it won't manifest itself in some table-dancing incident that you'll be ashamed of later, but rather in shamelessly living for Christ, your lips being loosened to speak of Christ. Be filled with the Spirit. This is so good. This is the power. This is the fuel of the Christian life, the Spirit of God in us. All right, you've got in your worship folder a yellow sheet. Would you pull that out? I know you thought the sermon was done. It's almost done. Only 16 more points. (laughs) I wanted you to have this. I want to finish out our time in the Word by giving you just kind of a quick overview of what the New Testament teaches us about the various ministries of the Holy Spirit. This is not an exhaustive list. It's all I could fit on a one sheet front and back in 12-point type or whatever. 
what is he up to? What is the Holy Spirit up to? If, if we yield to the Spirit, what's he going to do? What's he going to produce in us? I think knowing these things will better enable us to confidently yield to the control of the Holy Spirit when we know what his aim is. So I call these the ministries of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, his acts and his works. And there's a distinction there. An act is a one-time thing that he does in us. A work is an ongoing process. Some of these are experiential, some are not. There is some debate, some intramural debate within the church regarding some of these things. It's not our purpose today to settle all that, but there's not much debate about this first one. The Holy Spirit was sent to convict the lost of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what Jesus said in John 16, 7 and 8. That tells us it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict your friend of their sin, to open her eyes to her need for righteousness, to convince her of the certainty that judgment is coming. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's not your job. It's not my job. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict of sin. God, help us learn to cooperate with the Spirit's work in the lives of our loved ones. Amen? The Holy Spirit also gives new birth. Jesus was very clear about this. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You must be born again. It's the Holy Spirit who imparts the life of God to a dead soul. Amen? And regenerates him or her. Makes them alive. Listen, salvation is not just convincing somebody to say the right things about Jesus. It's a supernatural spiritual resurrection that requires the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life. I think knowing these things will change how you pray for people. Holy Spirit baptizes God's people into Christ's body. Listen to this scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, all made to drink of one spirit. There's some debate about this in Christianity, but scripturally to me this appears to be, this baptizing of the spirit appears to be a one-time act of the spirit whereby he places a new believer into the body of Christ. That's what it says here uniting them with Jesus, immersing them in spiritual union with other brothers and sisters in the body. He also indwells true believers. Did you know that every single true believer has the Holy Spirit? There's not a person in this room today who is genuinely a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. But the real question is, is does the Holy Spirit have you? That's the question. That's the question of control, of influence. Romans 8, 9 says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you are not of Christ. Jesus said, the Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. And we are recipients of that new covenant blessing, aren't we? Well, what else does the Holy Spirit do? He comforts and helps people. You say, where do you get that? From his name? Jesus called him the comforter, the helper. I love praying that God, I did last night, prayed with someone that God would send his spirit to them to comfort them like only he can. The spirit guides into truth. The spirit illuminates God's wonderful gifts. He bestows spiritual gifts. 
upon the people of God, every Christian is a gifted person. The Holy Spirit seals and guarantees our inheritance. Praise God for that. And listen, he prays for God's people in their weakness. Listen to Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When you don't know what to pray, when things are pressing down on you that you're just, ah, got nothing. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity is praying for you, interceding according to the will of God with the Father. I hope that's comforting to you. And I love this one. The Holy Spirit is speaking to Christ's church. Have you ever heard that phrase, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear? I pray that all the time. It comes from Revelations. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This has been a constant prayer of mine these days as our church here is seeking to do what that first church did, move out and extend the witness of the gospel into other communities. We have a team of elders here Nine elders who are praying and seeking God, and you can pray for them as they make decisions about the, the when and the how to keep spreading the gospel through establishing new congregations. And I pray for our elder team that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to this church at this time because He is definitely speaking. And we don't want to run ahead of the Holy Spirit, amen? Amen. And we don't want to lag behind. We want to keep in step with the Spirit, as it says. Be in sync with the Holy Spirit of God in spreading the gospel. The Holy Spirit fills God's people, as it says. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's what Dr. Wemp was referring to. And you can pray this. I, I pray this a lot. Holy Spirit, empty me of myself and fill me up with you. You ever pray that? Empty me of myself. Fill me with you, Holy Spirit. I want your thoughts, your desires, your affections, your direction for my life, your love for the Son of God. Fill me up with that. And as it says here, joy. It says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's because those two are related. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy. How many of you could use a little more joy in your life? Yeah. It comes from the Holy Spirit and being filled by the Spirit to the brim. No room for anything but Him. The Holy Spirit also emboldens God's people. It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Acts 4.31. Amen. He leads God's people. Imagine having an indwelling life guide to lead you along life's path every moment of every day. God has provided for that in the Holy Spirit living within you. The Holy Spirit works to transform God's people into the image of Christ. Praise God for that. The Holy Spirit provides inner assurance. He bears witness with our spirit, it says in Romans 8, 16, that we are the children of God. Do you have that voice inside of you telling you regularly you belong to God? Steve, you belong to God. You're one of His. You're, you're chosen. You're purchased. You're in the family. I have that voice. Do you? That's what it says. 
If you really belong to Christ, there's that inner witness of the Spirit affirming that to your soul. You're the real deal. You belong to Christ. And then, lastly, the Holy Spirit is set on magnifying Jesus. Jesus, speaking of the Spirit, said, He will glorify me. One interesting thing about the Holy Spirit is that He's not about Himself. He's not about glorifying Himself. I mean, He could. He's the third person of the Holy Trinity. But He's all about the Son. He's all about the Son. That's one way you know you're being filled by the Spirit is, is you become more and more about Jesus. Because that's what the Spirit does. How unselfish of Him, amen? How beautiful of Him to do that. So as you can see, we're going to have a great time seeing the acts of the Holy Spirit as we traverse this amazing book together, and I hope you'll join us for the journey. Would you bow your heads with me, please? And I thought it appropriate today on the front end of this new series to encourage you to just whisper a prayer to the Holy Spirit right now, a prayer that says, Holy Spirit, I am open. Would you say that? Holy Spirit, I am open to you. I'm open to all of your ministries. I'm open. And where I'm not open, open me up that I might receive everything that you have for me. And Holy Spirit, I pray that for me. Oh, how I want to be filled by you and emptied of self that I might magnify Christ the way you've always intended. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.